Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Passionate about standing up for all Canadians. The Roy Green Show continues. I just uh, was on Twitter during the break, and I <laughs> like this. Uh, Michelle Rempel, who was with us an hour ago talking about the uh, the border issue, Michelle just uh, posted to uh, Twitter, at Michelle Rempel, the behind-the-scenes look at my hit today for at the Roy Green Show. So there's a photograph of Michelle, obviously at an airport, and her suitcase is in front of her, and she's sitting on the floor with... What it looks like, um, maybe a passport and tickets, and she's uh, she's talking on the phone, and that's how she did the interview with us. There have been times I have to tell you, there have been times when people have called me after a show, and they said, "You have no idea what I was doing or what I was wearing while I was talking to you," and I always worried about that because there'd be no reason for them to do that unless it was a hyper unusual situation. So I always made sure that I did not follow up with any questions about it. Just yeah, thanks very much for your call and talk to you soon. Peter Cahill shot and killed John Stiers in Hamilton in 2016. He was found not guilty earlier this week. And there have been accusations made that the justice system failed a First Nations man, Mr. Stiers, and protected a white male, Mr. Cahill. And there have been comparisons made by some people to the Colton Bushy case in Saskatchewan. Um, Mr. Cahill testified he believed Mr. Stiers was in the, in the act of stealing his truck. Now, Jeff Manishin is the criminal lawyer who defended Peter Cahill in Hamilton. And uh, just, um, just to be clear about uh, everything, I'm, Jeff is a good friend of mine. We've known each other for, for many, many years. We have a group of three or four of us who get together once a month for lunch, and we talk about about all sorts of things, including criminal cases. And I can tell you, Mr. Manishin is the utmost professional, although he still owes me a golf game. How are you, Jeff? Just great, Roy. How does, uh, let me ask you this, how does, a, how does a case like this, with all of the emotion that's involved, and then the, there's been the after effects of it, how does it affect the, uh, the defense lawyer? Well, I think uh, part of the answer I would say to you is that I've been practicing for over 40 years. So I've seen a wide variety of cases, and some are more emotionally charged than others. By way of an example, only sexual assault cases where you have to cross-examine a complainant. Those are extremely wearing and challenging, you know, almost from a psychological standpoint for a defense lawyer. Um, with respect to a murder case, when you have one like this where if he's found guilty, it's life imprisonment and no parole for at least 10 years for a young guy, no record. And on the other hand, if he's found not guilty, he walks out the door a free man. There's a responsibility that a defense counsel has to be ready to deal with. And so what you do is, at least what I did with this case, certainly, is just an all-encompassing everything I could think of to do whatever I could do to prepare and then to carry out the things I'd prepared. I had a couple of nights or early mornings of really difficult sleep. But once we got through those and we got through the evidence, 
you do everything you can, and then you're ready to live with whatever the outcome is. Yeah. Was there ever, and many people will be aware of the, the verdict, but not of the specifics of the case. Was the issue of it being a Caucasian man and uh, a First Nations man who had been killed, was was that a factor at all? Did that did that have a did that have a sidebar influence on the case, or maybe a direct influence on the case? We'll talk about that right from two dimensions. First, in terms of the incident itself, not in the slightest, not in the slightest, because when Mr. Cahill came outside at three in the morning, and I can tell you this, and it's really important for everybody to understand this, when he came outside and he was in his shorts, his t-shirt, his bare feet at three in the morning in February. He was with his girlfriend, and it was a fairly rural area, and he knew within his vehicle was a garage door opener and knife, because he kept a knife in the wealth compartment, or in the, in the console, and if somebody got into his home, there was access to the home. There wasn't security. So when he came outside, the objective he had was stop the man just by detaining him and disarming him. And he had the safety on his gun. He, he only fired when he feared for his life. But at the time that he did, so he, had, he couldn't see the person, and the person couldn't see him. So on the facts, race wasn't the bit of the case. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the jury would know and the public would know that Mr. Cahill was white and Mr. Stars was indigenous. And there could be concern, well, how will the jury deal with it? So that's the other dimension that gave rise to some people being concerned about that. And uh, for you, the, the defense lawyer who's handling the case, that does not come into play. Clearly, you're dealing with the law. That's right. Although, Roy, one other feature that did come up, and the Crown, because the Crown had the right to be able to apply for this, they said, look, we would like to bring an application to challenge each prospective juror for cause. And the idea for that is it's a procedure available in the criminal law. If there is reason to be concerned that a juror may not be, the old phrase was, indifferent as between Her Majesty the Queen and the prisoner at the bar. So if you have a case that's received a lot of publicity or concern, might the jury not be indifferent? Might they be, have some measure of predisposition where they might not be able to cite the case on the evidence? In relation to somebody who is uh, African-Canadian, the law has been very clear for some time based on a case called Parks. You can challenge on the basis that the jury, there may be a potential for bias on the part of the jury in regard to the racial background of the accused. Mm-hmm. Back in 2001, in a case out of Barry, the same kind of concern was identified in relation to a case in which the accused was white, deceased was indigenous. And the judge allowed the following question, and this is what, what the Crown asked for, and I gr- agreed to in our case, to ask each prospective juror, would your ability to decide this case fairly, impartially, and without any bias be affected by the fact that the, acu- the accused person in this case is white and the deceased victim was indigenous? And every single juror was asked that question and had to answer under oath or by affirmation. So there's been, there's been talk about and it's been written about peremptory challenges in this particular case. And, of course, that was the concern of the prime minister and uh, the justice minister in the Colton Bushy case. How, do, how did that work out in your case? Okay, let's separate those things out because peremptory challenges let the crown and the defense say challenge. And just for whatever reason, challenge. And the juror has to basically step up. So each side has the same amount of challenges. Mm-hmm. Years back when I was a crown, the crown actually had more of what were called stand-asides, meaning effectively wait till the end of the list. But it's been, it's been determined over the course of time, criminal code amended, we each have the same amount. And we have the right to be able to say challenge or contempt. In the Bushy case, it may have been the case, and I can't tell you 100%, it may have been the case in a couple of instances, a potential juror may have been indigenous, and the defense counsel said challenge. 
I, I believe, and I can't even give you 100%. What they didn't do in the Bushy case, the Roy, was to do this challenge for cause procedure. That's what it's called, challenge for cause. They didn't do it there, and I can't explain why not. But from 2001, at least in Ontario, a Superior Court judge said it's an appropriate question to ask. There's some case law I've seen, Supreme Court of Canada, Court of Appeals, saying that there exists a significant body of research and study that shows there's a genuine concern about biased attitudes that people in Canadian society may have against or towards Indigenous people. So much so, Roy, that the judge in the, in the Barry case said, I'm going to take judicial notice of that. In fact, it's so notorious. So, yes, I've seen evidence, and it's well established. So when you have those cases, and the Crown said, look, we want to apply to challenge for cause here, I cons- on my client's behalf, I said, I consent. I agree. There's a basis for it. So each of us took turns with each prospective juror. The Crown would ask the first, and I'd ask the next juror. And, and how it works, the potential juror, uh, the jury themselves really decide who is and isn't suitable at that stage. And then we still have the right to peremptory challenges. So that was done in our case. It was not done in the Bushy case. Okay. Now, you don't get to find out a lot about the jury or the prospective jurors, do you? Minimal. You see their name, you see their address, you see their occupation, and then you see what they look like when they come forward. Mm-hmm. And well, I can tell you, having been a crown, there are some juries from the looks of them, you go, I don't want him or her. And as the defense counsel, and there's a host of different reasons. It could be evidence-specific. It could be your own particular perspective. I say, I don't want him or her. And the problem is this, Roy. The federal government took the Bushy case and the outcry over the use of some peremptory challenges and said, okay, we're going to amend the criminal code. We're going to do away with peremptory challenges for everybody. And that's what they've proposed in Bill C-75. I'm going to tell you there are crowns and defenses saying, what did you do? You didn't have to do that. That was an old, that was, that's a response to one case. And, Roy, here's part B of it. Our case, the Hill case, may stand to show the federal government... Don't be so quick on Bill C-75. The challenge for cause is a perfectly good mechanism. And you can still have peremptory challenges. And so I'm hoping they'll review Bill C-75 and say, you know what? We missed the challenge for cause option. Better to make it standard. Indigenous accused or indigenous victim or different races of the two. Challenge for cause should be recognized. Jeff, let me get your hold on. Please, we'll come back with Jeff Madison, who is the lawyer for Peter Cahill on, uh, in the case in Hamilton. And we'll um, ask Mr. Manishin to give us some sense of what actually went on in the courtroom in this in this particular case. Stay with us. It's the Chorus Radio Network. Looking for the truth and not worried about rattling some cages to get at it. This is the Roy Green Show. There's a story that's come out of the United States, and it actually came from um, from polling firm and uh, Rasmussen. We're going to follow up on this tomorrow with our friend Fran Coombs, who's the managing editor of Rasmussen. And the story is this. The 31% of Americans answered a question posed by Rasmussen saying that they expect a second civil war in the United States and sooner rather than later. So, um, Fran uh, Coombs will bring us up to date on that on that particular polling that's taken place. Jeff Manishin, Hamilton criminal lawyer, Rawson McBride is uh, his firm who defended Peter Cahill in the uh, case, the second-degree second murder, second murder charge 
and the death of uh, John Stiers in 2016. Jeff, what can you, uh, for the person who doesn't know what happens in the courtroom, and that probably is most of us, what ha- what can you tell us about what went on in the in the, uh, in the in the courtroom and how what was the dynamic that took place in the courtroom? Well, from the standpoint of the presentation of the evidence, I can say to uh, to everyone that a lot of the case for the prosecution was not in dispute. That they called as a witness my client's girlfriend who was in the home, the police officers who were there at the scene, uh, police officers who seized exhibits, the pathologist who did the post mortem a bloodstain pattern analyst, a second pathologist who had an opinion in relation to the case. I mean, a lot of the, the evidence that the Crown led was not challenged. Um, and then we got into defense evidence, and there were certain witnesses that I called to support my client's position, including him. There were a couple of legal issues along the way that were dealt with in the absence of the jury. Uh, certain evidence that I wanted to lead was ruled out. Certain evidence the Crown wanted to be able to use in cross-examination of my client was ruled out. An expert witness I proposed to call, but the judge restricted me on as to what I could and couldn't lead. So that's the structure of the way that it flowed. If we then take a look at what were the really core features in the case, to me there were some very key evidence of evidentiary features. Number one, that my client's girlfriend made a 911 call very shortly after the incident, literally within like a minutes, and my client came on the phone and he said to the 911 operator that uh, he'd gone outside, that uh, the man had uh, raised his hands in a manner where my client believed he had a gun, that my client was afraid for his life that he shot and didn't want to lose his life. And the first officer, second officer at the scene who spoke with my client and arrested him for murder, my client said, look, I'm a soldier. That's how I was trained. Um, He brought his hands up to gun height, and I thought I was in trouble. And then he asked, does self-defense mean anything in court? So that's the framework of evidence that was right there in the Crown's case that my client was asserting from the outset. He was afraid for his life. He acted in self-defense. His military training was significant to how he approached this. So that was the core of what the Crown had, and that's then when my client testified and other evidence that they called were all in support of that. Was there any issue with your client taking a shotgun, a loaded shotgun, outside the house? Well, the way in which the Crown cross-examined him was to say you didn't have to go outside. You could have just called 911, or you could have just flipped the light on, or you could have just yelled, or you could have just fired. And, and what's wrong with that argument? There were a lot of things you could have done, and you didn't have to go outside at all. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with that argument? Well, uh, it, it's, it's perfectly valid to put that to him in cross-examination. And my client said this, and, and we called evidence from somebody. From, my client had been a member of the, uh, armed reserve, the, the Army and the Reserves in uh, the Brantford area for a good four or five years. And w- he was also, he participated in the operation of the G8 Summit, working with the police, okay, in terms of providing security. And he said that there's a lot of training that he had received to, as a soldier to be proactive. You don't wait and see what's going to happen. You take steps to assess the risk, to identify the issues, and to get out there and neutralize the risk and get control of the situation. And that's how they're trained, and it's drilled into them. And I called a training officer from him to say, yeah, that's it. That's how they are trained. And I called the psychologist to say, when you're trained that way, it can persist. If you've got enough training, it could stay with you even five years later, and even in a non-military situation. So my guy's evidence was, look... I was concerned. First of all, I heard these bangs outside. I thought it could have been somebody in the garage with potential access to the house. I didn't want to wait and see what was going to happen. I called 911. Who knows how long the police are going to take to get there? It's a fairly rural area, and the guy could be in the house by then. 
And the way I've got to deal with it is I've got to get control of the situation. Well, when you're trained that way, and I'm not, you aren't, lots, or you are maybe, lots of people aren't, the plan was to be able to go out and consistent with the training, get control of the situation, and the phrase is used, con- con- challenge, disarm, and detain. And that's all he wanted to do. And he yelled out when he, he, he got out there, he yelled, hey, hands up. The guy didn't put his hands up. Okay, the way that he responded was in a way where my guy was trained. He said, he's got a gun from those movements. I'm trained to watch his hands. And I've now got to basically protect my own life, fire at the center of mass, fire quickly, fire a couple shots, rapid succession. That's how I was trained. So the training part of the defense position was absolutely integral. And the judge then has to tell the jury that. He has to say, look, part of your consideration where his actions reasonable is you have to consider the relevant circumstances of the accused. In this case, the military training was a, was a critical part of that. Was the, uh, how much of an issue was the questioning that was done by police of your client? Um, the answer I'd give you is for the second officer scene, he really didn't ask questions. He said, are there any questions you'd like to ask? He didn't really question him, and, and I could, it, there was room for a potential challenge to say, gee, the guy hasn't had a chance to speak to a lawyer yet, but that wasn't something that really uh, I, I needed to challenge or even wanted to challenge. Because to me, when somebody at when first asked, tells the story, tells it the same way he tells it here, there's some case law that says that that's very compelling evidence of innocence, that, especially where when he testifies in trial, is consistent. So I was content with that. I would tell you that several hours later, he was cross-examined for a couple of hours by a very experienced police interrogator. And the Crown wanted to be able to use that statement to cross-examine my client. And I took the position that statement was an induced statement. It was not voluntary and not admissible because the officer on a number of occasions said, well, let me explain to you the difference between first-degree murder and second-degree murder because that's initially what they arrested him for. And to say to him, you know, I really need to get your side of the story. And my client asserted the right to silence. Yes, I understand, but I really need to hear your story. It could, it could really be important. It could really make a difference. No well, pressure No pressure there. <laughs> could really make, and my guy's in tears. At one stage, Roy, my guy was literally, he broke down in tears. The officer says, I'll go out and get you Kleenex. Mm-hmm. And watches him for about five minutes as he's crying. And then picks the time to come back in to question him further to see if he can get him to talk. Okay. Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this case. Uh, The country's talking about it, and uh, you've provided answers that we all wanted. Thank you. Oh, certainly. It's my pleasure. I think it's important for people to know more about the case, and you've given me the opportunity to do so. We'll see you soon. Okay. Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer in uh, Hamilton, Ross and McBride, and he's one of the best in the country, former Crown attorney as well. When we come back, it'll be time for The Beauties and the Beast. Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, Michelle Simpson, they'll all be with us, and we have a number of issues that we want to get at. Don't go away.